Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. On the Gaza issue, BRICS countries have a point to make. The first pause in the conflict since it started on October the 7th is expected to begin at 7 a.m. Friday local time. Thirteen women and children are expected to be freed by Hamas that afternoon in exchange for Palestinians being held in Israeli jails. What are BRICS emerging countries and their new fellow members saying? about this issue. A virtual summit on the Gaza conflict took place this week featuring leaders and representatives from Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, as well as Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the Secretary General of the United Nations. A joint statement was released after the summit calling for an immediate, durable, and sustained humanitarian truce leading to a cessation of hostilities. What role can BRICS country play here? How much of a difference will it make to the situation on the ground? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from Shanghai, China, by Professor Yin Zhi Guang of the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University, from Oklahoma, the U.S., by Professor Joshua Landis, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and from Pretoria, capital of South Africa, by Gerd Grobler, a former senior diplomat of South Africa. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. First of all, um, I would like to ask our guests to comment on the very latest uh, uh, development, which is, of course, very welcomed by all sides, that finally there is going to be a pause, or however you call it, uh, in hostilities to allow the exchange of hostages for Palestinians being held in Israeli um, prisons. And earlier, CGTN posted uh, this question to Gershon Baskin, a former Israeli negotiator who was part of the 2006 negotiations to release a soldier, Gilad Shalit, who was captured by Hamas. Let's listen in to what he has to say about the complexity of such a negotiation. There's no precedent for this. We've never experienced anything like this. I think in the whole world, there's never been a, a, um, a situation where there are 240 civilian hostages, mostly civilian hostages held by an enemy in, in, in a conflict where the parties are completely determined to destroy each other. This is the reality on the ground. Israel is negotiating with Hamas through third party negotiators with the intention of both sides to annihilate the other. So, Professor Lendis, I want to go to you directly to comment on the complexity, what has been going on behind the scene to secure such a volatile pause of hostility and what that means for the people on the ground. Well, it's tremendously welcome for the people on the ground. It seems that what pushed Israel towards this negotiation uh, and accepting it is that the families of the hostages in Israel have really raised their voice and begun to demand that something be done. They're worried that their hostages are going to get killed if this continues to go on. So that's the tension that Israel is fighting with. The United States has also been uh, increasingly ratcheting up pressure on Israel to come to this kind of a ceasefire. And uh, it's made other demands as well on Israel that they quickly find some solution for allowing Palestinians to go back to their homes, that they not attack the South, and um, allow, somehow provide protection 
for Palestinians in the south. And of course, that's going to be the next move of Israel is to come down to the south of Gaza and begin to try to destroy Hamas there because Hamas is in, in a sense temporarily protected in the south where the civilians have massed um, you know, two million of them. So it's a very precarious situation. Gerd, in South Africa, I want to get your take very quickly on what do you think led to the, um, the truce, the negotiated truce, and what it means for people on the ground? We all know that over the last couple of weeks, there's been tremendous pressure from the international community. There's been tremendous pressure from the families on both sides. So this can be seen as a as a positive first step in the sense that um, it, it is a major act of uh, a humanitarian act in the sense that the uh, hostages are going to be released, uh, food and water, etc. will be able to come in. Uh, it, but despite the fact that um, it, it, it can be seen and it must be welcomed, that I'm afraid the war is not over and it's it's very disturbing to hear what the Israelis are saying, that they are now still going in to crush Hamas. They want to see that this doesn't happen again. And of course, that they want to basically, as I say, crush, crush so, Hamas. So, so, so it means I'm that afraid there's a long way, mm -hmm. long way ahead. And, and that worries us because we've got to stop the violence, we've got to stop the military, yeah. and we probably will come back to that in terms of what the international community should be doing. All right. Well, let's let's take a look at what the international or, or major part of the international community have done. For instance, over 40% of the world's population belong in member, I should say, of this BRICS group, which has expanded earlier this year to include six new members, including countries, important countries in the Middle East. And just on Tuesday, November the 21st, as I said at the beginning, a virtual summit was held where leaders from these countries, as well as Secretary General of the United Nations, convened and uh, except the Prime Minister of India, the top leaders from the five major BRICS countries all made a speech, stated their position, and the summit also released a statement on their collective position. Let me go to Professor Landis once again. Why do you think at this particular moment uh, BRICS countries want to make a point? Do they have a role to play here? Because the truce was reportedly negotiated between um, the Palestinians and Israelis and with the the United States and Egyptians um, being involved. What role do BRICS want to play here? Well, I think the BRICS have been looking for a role. We've seen this with a currency, trying to move away from the U US currency. But this gives, I think, the BRICS a common voice because I would say the arrogance of European and American uh, attitude towards people like the Palestinians, people in the South, non-European people has something that has galled much of the global south and this issue allows the global south to come together and demand that the hypocrisy i think that many feel the united states and israel and the europeans have held towards the human rights in places like ukraine 
where they object to bombing of hospitals, bombing of civilians, killing of terrible ratio between civilians and soldiers. And in Israel and Gaza, where that same objection has not been made as strongly. And I think that much of the world is registering a sense of hypocrisy there. And, and this allows them to come together and make that announcement. Professor Ian, how do you look at the role the BRICS countries are trying to play here, sending out a very strong message? And uh, I actually haven't seen in recent times such a strong message, such a collective uh, action being taken by the BRICS countries on one on such an international hot button issue. Oh, absolutely. I think this is, a, uh, I would call it a silver lining in a very horrible uh, disaster. Um, on one hand, I agree with the previous guests that uh, the, the current situation shows the incapacitated uh, United Nations. Nevertheless, uh, there is still a very strong consensus among the international organizations to push forward a humanitarian uh, ceasefire. And uh, it, it is quite encouraging to see BRICS country, formerly known as a economic collaboration, now plays a much more uh, political role on the international they... affairs. Uh, to me, that's a revival of the South-South collaboration. Well, some people would say they're just trying to make their presence felt because some people hold the view that, for instance, China or uh, at least uh, some other countries, they don't have direct impact or influence on the situation on the ground. What is your view, Professor In? I think we have to jump out of that uh, um, state-centric, hegemonic view on big powers play a much bigger role in uh, international society. No, I think now we have to imagine that the international organizations through state-to-state uh, -state cooperation would play a much bigger role. It is a collective initiative rather than a single power's uh, intention to intervene that makes the deal possible. Let's take a look at some of the, the key messages expressed by different leaders during that summit. For instance, China's uh, President Xi Jinping said China believes that the following is urgent and imperative. First, the parties to the conflict must end hostilities and achieve a ceasefire immediately, stop all violence and attacks against civilians, release civilians held captive, and act to prevent loss of more lives and spare people from more miseries. Secondly, humanitarian corridors must be kept secure and unimpeded, and more humanitarian assistance should be provided to the population in Gaza. Third, the international community must act with practical measures to prevent the conflict from spilling over and endangering stability in the Middle East as a whole. Mr. Grobler in South Africa, what kind of difference does China's message make to that by other countries who, let's say, the United States or European countries. Is there a big difference you see there? As one can see from the statements made at BRICS and elsewhere, uh, there is very close consultation, very close coordination between South Africa and the other BRICS members. The point that was made early on, one of the, the key motivations of BRICS is to create a new multilateral system in which the developing world is treated as equals and also as regards the United Nations. I mean, there is a very strong feeling within BRICS and it came out from this meeting that, uh, and this is, as I say, a major goal of BRICS, is to reform the international <coughs> multilateral system and to get the United Nations to act.
mm. on, for instance, on, on, on Gaza. And um, I think President Xi also mentioned it was vitally important now for the United Nations to get their act together and implement the resolutions that have been adopted by the UN. In fact, there's been two now on Palestine and, and or Gaza, Palestine and, and Israel. But we want to see action. We want to see right. movement. And I think it's in that context okay. that BRICS can increasingly play a role. Mm -hmm. Professor Landers, do you think, of course, to have a new truly multilateral uh, framework in place is good for the long term? But do you think for the immediate challenges that people are facing in the Middle East, this mechanism can be translated into tangible results in the very short term? You know, I think looking at it from the Americans' perspective, the Global South do not have a very, as you pointed out, do not have a very big influence on Israel. Israel gets its arms from the United States. It's powerful. It can do what it wants, and it, particularly if, if America is willing to veto in the UN. On the other hand, the United States is constantly looking over its shoulder at China today. One of the major efforts on the part of the United States was the Abraham Accords to bring Saudi Arabia and Israel closer together, which was why this Gaza thing broke out when it did. And that worries the United States. Now that that has crumbled, in many ways, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries are turning to China and they're going to China. Now, America isn't very worried about that at this time, but it it's going to get momentum. And increasingly, much of the world is looking to China to balance the United States. And that's bad for the U.S. Uh, it's going to make it more difficult for the U.S. to keep the Gulf countries in its camp. And they're going to look to play both do sides. You, and the anger do, that many feel. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, if I can extrapolate from what you just said, <coughs> Professor Landis, do you think that uh, this uh, anxiety or the sense of insecurity from the United States probably you know, help push for the uh, establishment of this truce between the two sides, uh, especially seeing that the BRICS countries are making such collective... I think you're absolutely right. Yes, you're right. It is. I think the pressure is growing on the United States and young people in the United States are upset with the Biden administration because they see this. Uh, they don't like it at all and they disapprove. Older people are, are supporting Israel, but younger people see this as too violent, too much bombing, mm -hmm. and they don't understand it. Okay. Professor In, what is your take on this? Uh, what exactly is the immediate impact, let's say, of BRICS countries coming together, issuing a, a joint statement, which I would say is quite balanced because it calls for, for instance, acts of violence against Palestinian and Israeli civilians were condemned, including war crimes, in, in indiscriminate attacks and targeting of civilian infrastructure. Um, the chair joined calls for the immediate and unconditional release of all civilians who are being held illegally captive. Um, they expressed their deep concern at the dire humanitarian situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. They also reiterate the need for full respect of international humanitarian law without naming by which side. So what do you think is the the, um, the concrete impact on the ground of this meeting, did that have any influence on the agreement, the, the, the truce that has been reached by the Israelis and the Palestinians? I mean, I absolutely agree. I think it is, uh, it is a 
brilliant statement uh, coming from, uh, more importantly, the Global South side. Uh, I want to emphasize the Global South perspective precisely because uh, I agree with the Professor Landy's argument that uh, the Americans had very strong influence on the Israeli side. And for a long time, uh, America has advocated this particular type of uh, influence through two channels. One is state-to-state -state relations, but on the other hand, uh, it tried to form international alliances through international organizations. Now, for a long time, the Global South has yet to see a functionable international organizations that advocate the Global South perspective. And the BRICS statement made quite strongly and quite in a balanced way provides not only the the actual sort of uh, support, uh, a demonstration of a actual support from the Global South side, but also provides a moral uh, high ground for the entire argument on the Israeli and Palestinian issues. Uh, in this sense, I, I think this is absolutely a very timely and very important change in the global system. Are we going to see, however, Professor In, a split or race to uh, the higher ground, to the upper hand in terms of uh, um, its impact on international on geopolitics. On the one hand, we have the Western bloc, the Europeans being led by the United States. On the other hand, the global. So are we going to see polarized action that, you know, they're trying different approaches and competing against each other possibly? Although it might bring concrete benefits, good benefits for the people on the ground. No, I don't think there is. There will be a split, or uh, more important, more specifically, I don't think there will be a, uh, there will be a bipolar structure. Um, Bipolarism, the, 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 the sheer meaning of bipolarism are, are suggests that there needs to be two polar. And uh, uh, China has never... Because right now we're talking about the global north. Right now we're talking about the global north and yeah. the global south. And to me, that's, that's already kind of... There is of, no polar. There's no polar? The two, two there is blocks? No polar. There is no two single blocks? center in the global south. The global south is a collective. Global south is a is is a group of countries. Okay. BRICS. It's the, the the name of itself. BRICS is a demonstration of a collective initiative. Sure, there is a very strong nations within the global south, China. But we can't really argue that China is a polar, largely because mm -hmm. you can you do not see that China wants to advocate its own national interests through the global south platform. Well, it's everything done under consensus as, as much as I, as far as I understand. Uh, you mentioned this uh, big country in, in the BRICS. I would say there are other big countries in the BRICS as well. For instance, the country that initiated the summit, South Africa. Uh, Mr. Grobler, South Africa initiated this meeting and South Africa actually made some of the strongest statements during the meeting. Could you help us understand why South Africans or South Africa government feels it's particularly pertinent for them to make these statements. Some of them uh, could be considered very, very sharp for the Israelis. Now, let me just say, on the issue of the global scene, we have in the world, we are moving away from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. And in this context, BRICS is a very, very important, is going to play a very important role, as I said early on, to address the, the multilateral concerns that the developing world has. But let me come to South Africa. South Africa has a very long-standing relationship with the Palestinian people and have identified very strongly with their cause. 
Many years ago, it started, Yasser Arafat was here on a number of occasions. He and President Mandela met. And uh, we... Uh, there is a huge anger and a frustration in South Africa about the lack of commitment on the part of the international community, in particular the UN, not to move forward with concrete steps towards a negotiated settlement. And, and, and South Africa's <laughs> What's the cause of that, though, Mr. Mr. Grobler? Sorry for interrupting. What do you think has bounded, has binded the, the feet of the UN not being able to, do, to move forward in reaching a negotiated settlement of this issue? Well, if one, and, and I think this is something that we're going to see from BRICS in the, in the time to come, is a reform of the United Nations and in particular the form of the United Nations Security Council, because they have voted a number of times now, and every time each of the, of the five P, so-called P5 members, they veto this particular resolution to protect their own national interests. And, and somewhere along the line, and I know that in the BRICS meeting we had here in South Africa, there was a long discussion about UN reform. And what we would want to see is, and President G has also mentioned that, as I said earlier on, that the UN must now implement the resolutions that have been adopted, not only now. There have been resolutions adopted against Israel yeah. for years. In fact, I read that in the period 2015 to 2021, more UN resolutions were adopted against Israel than whole of the rest of the world together. And yet nothing happens. The UN is not in a position to oh. implement, to, to, yeah. to force Israel to adopt this. And I think this is what South Africa and BRICS increasingly mm -hmm. will be focusing on. BRICS is there mm -hmm. to take care of the developing world. And sorry for interrupting here. Yeah. yeah, sorry for inter interrupting here. We're looking at the picture of the latest however, UN Security Council resolution, which was adopted much to the relief of the world on October the 27th under China's presidency, where the uh, resolution uh, is called Resolution 2712, and it says that all parties must act to deliver on these resolutions through concrete measures on the ground, and it's mostly focusing on humanitarian measures, humanitarian truths. Professor In, let me go to you. Under the context, under the circumstances, what Gert just mentioned, you know, years of years of inaction because of um, the maybe structure obstacles in the United Nations, um, why was China able to push to, to preside over the adoption of Resolution 2712? Uh, well, I think there are, uh, off the top of my head, there are two, at least two reasons. One, the Global South is no longer the Global South uh, uh, decades ago. And uh, the Global South, by grouping together, um, provides a much stronger bargaining power against the rest, the, uh, the, the global North, if you want to put it that way. And uh, for, uh, under, that, under that circumstances, we can see that uh, the consensus, the, the, the world has already seen there is a consensus forming in the Global South, and it will be completely um, a, a looser face for the Global North not to follow that consensus. And that's one. On the other hand, 
China, with the development of China and uh, the global south uh, altogether, particularly the BRICS country, um, they play a much stronger role and uh, henceforth they were, they were able to provide much more aid than, uh, than, than before. And as we see that uh, Previously, most of the international aid are coming from the global north. Mm -hmm. So that partially explains why yeah. the inaction uh, with regarding the Israeli issue. But now the global south has the power. Has more power, let's say. The, okay, the resolution was passed <clears throat> by a vote of 12 in favor to none against, which is crucial, with three abstentions, Russia, UK, United States. Nevertheless, it was adopted and it calls for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses and corridors through the Gaza Strip to facilitate the provision of essential goods and services. This was adopted on uh, October the 27th. I want to go to Professor Landis. You were just talking about the United States looking over the shoulder to the Global South. Can the United States and maybe the Global South look towards each other and work together to help resolve this issue? Um, it's going to be very difficult for the United States and for China to resolve this issue because it really demands that Palestinians have self-determination. And today, even though the United States upholds the two-state solution as its official policy. It has never pushed Israel or punished Israel for settling in the West Bank. And the West Bank is a fairly large part of uh, it's occupied by the Israeli army. But over 700,000 Israeli settlers have moved into the West Bank against all international So what law. is the meta discussion that must be had while we are having this humanitarian pause? Professor Landis, once again, I give you 30 seconds, please. Right. It, well, the, the discussions have to be how do you realize a two state solution and how uh, how to to work Is with it Israel. still possible. Is the two state <coughs> solution still possible? You know, I don't think it is possible for Israel to withdraw 700,000 of its citizens. That's almost you know, one in one in every 14 so why, is. So real. why is everybody talking about two state solution then? Because they don't know what else to do. Because so what? if they if they go for a one state solution, it means it means undoing a Jewish state because right. there are seven million okay. Palestinians and seven million Jews sure. living in historic Palestine. Sure. Okay. And if you, yeah, yeah, sorry. Get one last sentence. What must be done next in order to have that discussion about what to do? Five seconds, if you can get, sorry. There must be, the international community must step forward and start a committed process to finding right. a two-state negotiated solution. Thank there you very no much. We have option. to leave it there. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Ying Zhiguang, Professor Joshua Landis, and Ged Grobler for joining us. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. You've got the point.